I just want to start by saying thanks uh, to all of you for your attentiveness during the service and to Campus Ministries in particular for giving me the opportunity, which has been an incredible blessing to get to share God's word with you. One of the gifts of the archive that is the internet is the ability to experience these epic performances from the past. There's this video that I love featuring two legendary R&B artists, Luther Vandross and Diane Warwick. So in 1964, Diane Warwick released the song, A House Is Not a Home, and it had moderate success, but then 17 years later, Luther Vandross covered the song and turned it into a hit, and it became one of his signature songs. The cover was twice as long as the original. And at an award show at 1988, he performed this song, his version of the song, with Diane Warwick in attendance. Uh, I thought about showing the video, but you really have to watch the whole seven-minute video, which I sort of made one of my classes do, uh, in order to get the full feeling. So you should absolutely go after this chapel is over and watch this video. Uh, but the entire performance is seven minutes of Vandross showing off his range and his virtuosity and Warwick watching in tears and great laughter. And I love it so much. I think I've probably watched it 30 or 40 times, including this morning. Because you can feel the joy that is flowing between these two artists as they share their gifts. One writer, the poet Ross Gay, describes the scene as Warwick beholding his holding of her song. See, it was her song. She wrote it, and yet she wasn't possessive of it. She wasn't upset that someone had made it his own and made it a hit. She gave it to him freely. And in this performance, he gives it back to her. And this already lovely thing somehow exceeds itself. You watch this unalloyed delight of her beholding him as he holds her song and sings it back to her. And maybe you've never written a song that's been covered by someone else. I haven't. <laughs> but most of us know a bit of how it feels to offer our gifts, maybe athletically or artistically or theatrically, and to have other people show up to receive them. Investing their heart in honoring your gifts, it means so much. And whether you do your work on a stage or on a field or in a classroom or in a lab, all of us are invited every day to offer something of ourself to the world. And even if someone eventually pays you for it, and hopefully that'll happen for some of us, offering and accepting is more than a transaction because something happens in the sharing of our gifts that is priceless. Giving and receiving is at the heart of human experience because life itself is God's gift, meant to be offered back up to him every day. So each day we rise to mercies that are new with the morning. Every day we breathe about 22,000 times, and each and every one of them is a gift meant to be offered back up to the God who has given us breath today. And the call from the beginning has been for us to care for this world's awesome goodness. To use our creativity to unfold creation's potentialities 
to live with hospitality and honor, to share our gifts and spread the joy, holding and beholding. But we have sinned and spoiled the gifts. We have filled the world with dragons, and we have become dragons ourselves who grasp in our greed, who consume and accumulate, who possess and control and degrade and destroy. And our situation is so dire that it requires God's intervention to undragon us. And the gospel is, is that God intervenes. That God undragons us like Eustace in Lewis's story, if you remember that from the first uh, message in the series. God meets our way of the dragon with his way of the lamb. Like a lamb, God gives his very self, God's greatest, most unspeakable gift is God. So I begin with this reflection on sharing and spoiling gifts because prayer, this series is about prayer, or supposed to be about prayer. And prayer is about asking God for something, asking God to give something, to do something. And lots of people pray, but Christian prayer is unique because our asking always takes place as part of a story in which God has already given himself in the Son and continually gives himself in the Spirit in a way that keeps on multiplying more than we knew was there. To say it another way, prayer, whenever we pray, it places us imaginatively, imaginatively in a story that is defined by God's giving. Now this story calls us to give. To give ourselves, to take up our cross, to lay ourselves down, to put our whole self in. But we can give because God has first given to us. God has already put his whole self in. And he is working to heal us and all of creation. That's the story. And it's good news for people like me, or maybe like you, who struggle to see, who struggle to believe, who struggle to pray. Because I confess that after all these years, I still feel resistance and frustration and confusion when it comes to prayer. And if, like me, you find prayer difficult, then the good news from the passage that we just had read for us is that while we do not even know how to pray, the Spirit prays for us with groans too deep for words. So here is the prayer for the last chapel talk, which I'm giving to you at the beginning rather than the end. Lord, I do not even know how to pray. But your great love is my great hope. That in the moments when you sit to pray or kneel to pray or come to pray and you feel like there are no words to say, Lord, I do not even know how to pray. But your great love is my great hope. I take that prayer from this passage where suffering sits side by side with glory. And weakness sits side by side with freedom, and frustration sits side by side with hope. So how does this passage, Romans 8, help us to see a different world, and how does that help us pray? I just want to give you three observations from Romans 8. A larger story, a sure identity, and a strong hope. 
Just take the first, a larger story. Now, a key word in the passage in Romans 8 is this word, groan. It's a good word. I like that word, especially right now in week 15, 16 of the semester. What, what is a groan? A groan is a noise. It doesn't have a definite translation, but it does have a distinct meaning, right? When you just say, ugh, right? Everybody give me a groan right now. Just, just get it out. Give me a groan. Yeah, that's right. So our groans don't have a definite translation, but they do have distinct meaning of, of frustration or when we don't know what to say, and the most appropriate thing to say is simply to say, ugh, to groan. And throughout this passage, Paul talks about all of these other people, persons who groan along with our groans. So what's happening here is that our groaning is getting caught up in this larger story. And the larger story that the Spirit catches us up in is first the story of Israel. The language of slavery and freedom that's in this passage, of course, recalls the slavery of Israel in Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 2, we read this, that the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God, and God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. You are not the first to groan, Paul says. And if God heard the groaning of Israel the prayers that came and the groans, and he responded by raising them up out of Egypt, will he not hear your groaning too? One other thing I love about that Vandross and Warwick video is that it manifests and lives in this distinctively black musical legacy which is defined by transposing pain into art. Think of the tradition of the spiritual which transposes the horror of slavery into anthems of freedom and justice. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. Tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. Our groans are connected to this larger story of a God who hears and who rescues. Or this larger tradition of jazz that resolves and weaves dissonance into harmony. Or the blues that start with sadness but set that sadness in this larger musical story of history and hope. And that's the case with any great story, isn't it? There's always adversity, and there's tragedy, and there's defeat, and there's loss. But the reason why we go back to them again and again and again is because we long to see struggle resolved and redeemed. If you only watch the first two-thirds of the movie, if you only read the first two-thirds of the book, the meaning of the story is different than if you watch it all the way through, read it all the way through. Because although the third act does not change the events of the first two acts, it does change the meaning of the first two acts. My brothers and sisters, we live in the first two acts, and the third act is yet to come. God does not change the past, but through weaving it into his story, he redeems it, gives it new meaning. The Spirit groans with us to remind us of that larger story, a story that offers new meanings for the past and new possibilities for the future. We are caught up in this larger story every time we pray. 
Second observation is that as we pray, the Spirit reminds us of who we are. This, in fact, is the Spirit's primary ministry. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And we spend such enormous time and energy trying to achieve an identity, trying to prove who we are to the world, like pushing this boulder like Sisyphus up the hill. Will somebody please see me and notice me? And the Spirit testifies who we are, that we are God's children. We are not slaves. We are sons and daughters. Our way is not the way of the dragon. The way of the lion who is the lamb who suffers to bring us to glory. And this is who we are because we have been united to Christ by the Spirit. Here's some theology. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of the Father. And that means that he is the only one who possesses by nature the right to call God Father. But when he teaches us to pray, how does he teach us? Our Father. Our Father. And that means that what belongs to him by nature, he gives to us as a gift. The right to call God Father. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. You and me should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Here we are being flung into the deepest part of the theological ocean. Because what lies behind the joy of holding and beholding is the eternal bond of love that flows between the Father and the Son through the Spirit. And the delight on the faces of the two singers, the delight of giving and receiving, is a glimpse of the joy that is at the very center of the universe. The joy that we see in Jesus' baptism when the Father cannot contain himself any longer and breaks through the clouds and sings, this is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And it's the same love that has been lavished on us that has come into the darkness to find us, to name us. That as we try to achieve an identity, he comes and gives it to us as a gift. The Spirit testifies that we are God's children. Your identity is sure. And Paul takes us from this vision of glory back to the experience of groaning. And he says, we do not pray, we do not groan, we do not struggle as slaves, as those who have been shut outside in the dark. We're in the house. We are God's children. And the Spirit groans with us to let us know that our identity is sure. Third observation. As we pray, the Spirit catches up in strong hope because there's this wider lens that Paul talks about where he says that the whole of creation has been groaning too. That the whole of creation waits with breathless anticipation for the revelation of God's sons and daughters. And that means that the hope of my heart is the hope of creation itself. And the story of my life 
is bound up in the story of creation itself. I groan, you groan, but creation groans too. And when you groan for redemption, you are connecting to the song of creation, a song of hope in which our struggles give way to an even greater glory. And so we keep praying because this hope is strong. Sometimes we do feel alone in the darkness, cast out, forsaken, disconnected. And yet the Spirit groans to remind us that the darkness is not the deepest reality. That the deepest reality is grace. A God who gives gift after gift after gift, including the gift of his very self. And that gift is the anchor for our hearts in a world that groans, reminding us that there is always hope. Ten years ago, my family moved from Chicago to California. It was that year that Melissa's sister, my sister-in-law, lost a two-year battle with brain cancer. During those two years, Melissa was frequently back and forth with her sister, and she was with her sister when she died. Her grief is her own story to tell. But I can tell you how powerless I felt to do anything to make it better. My work is words. Preaching, teaching, writing, consoling. But I can tell you that words have never felt so empty and powerless and powerless as they felt. And then we moved to California, 2,000 miles away. And it was strange to be so far away from home, far away from anyone who knew the grief and heartache we were carrying. It was lonely. And then one Sunday, we went to this new church. And they sang a song that I had never heard before. It went like this. Flesh will fail. Bones will break. Thieves will steal. The earth will shake. Night will fall. Flowers fade. The Lord will give and take away. Then came the chorus. Because of his great love, we are not overcome. Because of his great love, we are not overcome. And we wept for the rest of the service, and we knew that we had found a home. They did not know our history, but they did know our hope. We didn't have yet any shared history with them, 
but we did have a shared hope. And some of you are graduating and will be moving to new places and starting new seasons. And whatever you do, wherever you go, I hope that you will find a church home like that, a place to house the hope that we share. Because we are not strong enough to carry it ourselves. It must carry us. And the arms of fellow believers who will hold us and behold us, who will help us hope when we cannot hope ourselves. Because it is the songs and prayers of the church in them that we are caught up in the song of his great love. And it is because of his great love that we are not overcome. The band can come up. I'm almost done. And as they come up, let me just remind you that the ways of God may sometimes seem strange to us. But he is no stranger. We know who he is. We have history with this God. He is the God of creation who brought order out of chaos, making a spacious place for his people to flourish. He is the God of redemption who brought Israel out of Egypt, hearing his people's groanings and setting them free. He is the God revealed in Jesus Christ who raised him from the dead and set him at his right hand to intercede for us. He is the God who reveals himself in the sending of the Spirit who cries out, Abba, Father, in our hearts so that we would know that we are God's children. He is the God who will reveal himself in the renewal of all things, which the whole creation awaits with breathless anticipation. We pray to a God with whom we have a history, a God whose great love is our great hope. He is no stranger. He's our God. And so we pray, not knowing how to pray. And our groaning is met by the gift of the Spirit who takes up our songs and our prayers and transposes them into a longer and stronger song. A song of suffering and glory, of history and hope. A song to heal the eyes of our hearts. Let's pray. O God, who heals all our diseases, heal our diseased imaginations. Open our eyes to see what our ancestors saw. You have our attention. Draw our attention to the vulnerable. Help us know that we are safe so that we can be brave. And whether we feel empty or full, let us walk in the way of loyal love. We do not even know how to pray. But your great love is our great hope. In Jesus' name.